Hey everyone and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm your host Lena Ebijamra and it is exciting to be back on. I feel like I haven't recorded a podcast in a while and I couldn't be happier about who uh, the conversation will be with today. She is a new friend to me and uh, her story is a story of hope and I'm telling you guys um, the whole point of this podcast is to remind everybody of the hope that we have in Christ no matter what we're facing through. So I'm going to introduce her in a second, but just to let you know how I came across Shauna Downs, it was through Facebook. And uh, we are going to get to know each other here on the podcast in a minute, which is exciting to me because it has a freshness to it. But how I met you was Caitlin Beatty, who is a prolific journalist type Christian person who, I've, who is my Facebook friend, posted an update that you had written. And it was a couple of weeks ago, it was not that long ago, and it struck me in my, in my soul. I just felt like it was the heart of how I would approach a very difficult conversation. Uh, and at the time, it was it was just when everything was coming down in New York on um, abortions at the, to, all the way to term. And you just have a unique story, and we're going to get into it in a minute. But before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, um, you know, I was thinking this is kind of like a blind date, so I hope it goes well, Lena. Um, but I, uh, my name's Shauna and my husband and I run a nonprofit organization. We consider ourselves missionaries to missionaries. We have, um, our, our, um, nonprofit is Good Samaritan Shipping Ministries and we have a big boat. So what we do is we transport supplies, building materials, crisis relief goods from the States to the Caribbean. We've been working in Puerto Rico for the last year since Hurricane Maria, um, and we've brought over almost just shy of a million pounds generators, solar power, light, water, food, clothes, building materials, you name it, we've brought it over. Um, basically, a couple of years ago, we were praying about what we could do for the Lord, what we could give back to the Lord with our lives. And my husband said, I think God's t- telling me that we're supposed to get a boat and take stuff to missionaries. And oh my god this is awesome <laughs> so that's what we do uh we have so, there's, there's so much to unpack here so let me just slow you down for a minute i'm one of those people like i want to know the story in detail okay. and so, first of all you don't sound very old and 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 i laughed about the blind date thing because i'm single and so i don't go on a lot of dates at all <laughs> little blind date, but i might so so i do hope this goes well and i think it will but but you what were you guys doing before? Like, how, I mean, if your husband shows up and says, Hey, we're going to, first of all, you sound like drug dealers, right? But except for right. good things. Yeah. We're pirates for Jesus. It's awesome. Um, he has been in the Marine industry forever. So he was a commercial diver. He worked on boats. He worked in shipyards. I had absolutely no idea what I was agreeing to. I did uh, high level customer relation type of work. Um, so I sat in a cubicle and worked on a computer all day and, um, but man, we prayed like crazy for about six months after he had this idea. And at some point delayed obedience is still disobedience. So mm-hmm. we, we just took the plunge and we started Good Samaritan, um, in 2016 and we prayed like crazy and God gave us a boat, uh, last November. We finally you didn't got have a boat before. No, we didn't have a boat. We didn't have anything. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, you can't even get over that. And so did you just start raising funds and telling people your vision? And next thing you know, you were on the road. Yeah, pretty much. Well, we tried, we tried like crazy for a year and a half to get it off the ground, to raise funds. We couldn't raise $2. Um, 
um, the, 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 it seemed like everybody thought that's such a great idea. Call us when you get a boat. And I think what God was doing was teaching us that if you're really going to do this, you have to rely solely on me. It is not going to be because y'all are awesome or great fundraisers or visionaries. It's it's going to be because of my power. So we had finally said, all right, God, we've done everything we can. We were homeless for a year traveling to and from Louisiana trying to get this boat. Um, our three kids in the suburban with us traveling all over trying to network. And and we finally said, we can't figure it out. We don't know how you're going to make this happen. And then five weeks later, a company basically offered to let us buy this boat for um, less than what you would buy a car for. So, um, well, right now, sitting on a boat in Puerto Rico on this lovely blind date, no, we uh, <laughs> we homeschool and we work on the boat. Um, we it's a 150 foot boat, like I said. So it's got a big back deck. So we've got containers. We have to work with cranes. We have to do heavy machinery. So we spend our time receiving the donations on the Florida side, praying like crazy that God would send the funds for fuel and groceries and traveling back and forth to Puerto Rico. When we're here on the island, uh, we serve alongside a lot of the groups that we are working with. So we've been helping do roofs or distributions or rebuilding houses. So we just go wherever God sends us and we do whatever he asks us to do. How often home to Jacksonville, Florida? You told me you were from Jacksonville. Um, we probably have been back in Jacksonville three times since we got the boat last November. Um, but we've, yeah, we live on the boat. We don't have a house anymore. So we live on the boat full time and, um, we travel all over Florida to pick up supplies, but we try to head back to Jacksonville as often as we can since that's home. And how do people get stuff to you guys? Um, as far as partnering with us directly, uh, the, our biggest thing that we need donated normally is just funds. And so we don't do fundraisers or anything like that. We kind of pray about it, make our needs known and God sends checks. I, I don't, I don't know how he does it. It's, it's awesome. But as far as the donations that we bring, we will usually, let's say you're working with a group in Puerto Rico, you gather up the supplies that they need for the job they're doing. And we just transport it. We're like your friend with a pickup truck. I love that you guys are doing this. It's its, its own podcast <laughs> and it's so hopeful, but really I want to kind of dig in a little more. So y'all, you t- talk a lot about, you felt like this was what the Lord wanted you to do. So clearly, you know, you're passionate about Jesus. Tell us a bit about how you started walking with the Lord. And I mean, that part of your story. Sure. Well, I'm a recovering pastor's daughter. So I've been a Christian. I'm in a Christian environment my whole life. Um, I say that jokingly because, you know, your your pastor's kids have a certain stereotype that they're always saddled with. I, I am that stereotype. So um, I asked Jesus into my heart after Awana when I was five. Um, I always believed in the Lord. And then on, on the flip side, my husband's family, um, they they kind of did Sunday school as well. He says just in case my in-laws listen to this, he says they did Sunday school as free babysitting on Sunday mornings. So there wasn't quite the same commitment to the Lord. Um, I ran hard and fast uh, in my teens and didn't want anything really to do with the church. And then James always thought that he was saved, but 
um, about his mid thirties, he realized that he wasn't quite so sure anymore. So he, he, I don't know, man, we, we just, we come from such a hard place. My husband was an addict and he is a convicted felon and he went to jail when our oldest daughter was about two. And he realized that this just wasn't the life that he wanted. And I feel like God wooed us back to him gently and slowly. Um, I think we're both. You I mean, I love what God is. I already liked you with, with, with the, I got you on the podcast because of your story on abortion, but you have such a story of redemption. It's just amazing. It's awesome. Listen, if God can use James and I, he really can use anybody. It is so true. And you stuck with him. I mean, before, and because we are going to get to talking about abortion, which is why we, I asked you to be on the podcast, but he went to jail while you were married and then comes out and like, ha, tell us a little bit about that. I can't just gloss over that. Okay. Well, um, he, he was a meth addict. And so he had some charges hanging over his head related to that, that had never been resolved from before we ever met. And they caught up to him. Um, one afternoon we were out on a wave runner playing with our daughter and we got pulled over by a water cop for going too fast through a no wake zone. And this warrant showed up and it just rocked our world. Um, he was a commercial diver at the time. So great job, good money, wild, crazy, adventurous life. And it just was shut off like that. Um, so he was in jail for just shy of 10 months, I think. And um, the DA really wanted to make an example of him because this was a fugitive from justice warrant that was out. Um, And she wanted him to go to jail for 10 years. And I think that God, I I know that God was in that. He had more planned for James and I since before he laid the foundations of this earth. And so he got James out and um James decided that he wanted to start going to church. I kind of went kicking and screaming because I had I had done my time in church and I didn't really want to go back. Um, but I don't even know what happened. It's like one day we woke up and I am just passionately in love with the Lord. And James is getting baptized and and he's deciding, man, there's there's got to be more to our lives than this nine to five chasing the American dream thing. Mm-hmm. Let's let's pray about what it is and now. A few years later, we're missionaries. Talk about a little bit um, your earlier years when you walked through what sounds like an incredibly painful time. James was not part of your story then. Maybe walk us through sort of why you and I connected on Facebook and how that unfolded so that we can hone in on some of the healing that happened in your life. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I was, I'm a pastor's daughter, so I've, I've always known what the Lord expects from us. Um, and I've always, that's always chafed against me. My dad was, um, he's a wonderful man and our relationship is fully redeemed and restored and it's beautiful. But, uh, when we were growing up, i just felt like he was incredibly controlling. And a lot of it had to do with, we've got to act a certain way for his ministry. And, you can't do this because the church is watching and stuff like that. So when I hit middle school, I, I really started trying to pull against those restrictions. And um, when I was 15, I, I fell in love with a boy and I just was sure my parents wouldn't wouldn't approve. So I snuck around to date him. And, and when they found out there was severe repercussions that they were going to um, they wanted to put against me. So I ran away from home. 
And um, we lived in a small town in Colorado. So I still went to school. I still kept my job. I was just super arrogant. And I was just super sure that I knew what was best. And um, I just wanted to my independence. Um, So after a couple months, my parents had enough of, of me. I don't know, whatever I was doing. And they sent me to a... I've call, I used to call it a boot camp for juvenile delinquents. In my adult years, I've heard of them referred to as Christian behavior modification camps. But it was a 10-week camp um, designed to address teens with authority issues. Or um, some teens were sentenced there as juvenile delinquents. So um, when they brought me back home, it was under the threat of, uh, we'll bring you home, but there's a year-long program. And so watch your P's and Q's. Otherwise, you're going to this other program. And so when I was 17, I fell in love again because, you know, I'm a teenager. That's what we did. And when I was 17, I found out I was pregnant. Um, My boyfriend was a year older than me. And so it was right at the end of my junior year of high school. So he was headed off to college in the fall and uh, he was an athlete, so he had a scholarship and he really wanted to pursue his scholarship. And I just loved him and I really wanted to keep him. And so I don't think I don't even remember sitting down and talking about really what our options were. It was just I don't want to be a dad. And so I decided to have an abortion. Um, I have always been pro-life. So it, it, there was no misconception about what was growing inside of my womb. There was no, I know exactly what I was doing, but I think that I was so desperate, so scared. So all of the emotions that I, I don't think that I could ever properly convey that people that find themselves in crisis pregnancies experience. I, it was so tumultuous that, um, I just tried to shut off that part of my brain and my heart. Um, so So I went, go ahead. Go on. Well, I want to just to, to, to wrap my mind a bit more. How old were you when, when this was happening again? Eight, 17, 18? Yeah, I was 17. Um, it was the it was the summer between my junior and senior year. So 17 and a half. And, and your parents had, were, were you living with them or had they kicked you out? No, I was home. Um, I came back home after this program in Canada. And uh, I, so that I was brought back home my sophomore year. And so this was about a year and a half later. And so you find out you're pregnant at how many weeks? Like you miss a period? Is that how you found out? Yeah, I I ignored it for a while. I had a sinking feeling. I feel like I ignored it for a few weeks and really hoped. Um, I probably found out I was pregnant a couple weeks before I actually went to the appointment. And at the appointment, they do an ultrasound to confirm how far along you were. And the morning of the appointment, I was 11 weeks and four days. So I'd probably known since I was eight weeks, I was just really trying to will my period to come and for me to not be pregnant. And you all came to the conclusion together. Walk us through a bit of the isolation you felt and sort of, because now you're that rebel kid that like, there's so much shame again. I mean, just walk me through that season of the fear of, of feeling like I might be pregnant to, oh, I am, I think I am. And now telling someone and reaching this, like, did you feel like you had any choice at that point? Um, or, or what was going through your soul at that point? I, I don't remember feeling like 
I had choices. I knew uh, that adoption would would be the the best option. I knew that I could have a baby. I I could not have that conversation with my parents in light of all all of the problems I had already caused, all of the embarrassment I had already caused, and the fact that they had sent me away before. Um, I just was sure that I, they would send me away again. And, um, I, I, it almost broke me the first time and having to reintegrate into our church and our life after that was hard enough, um, being the, the bad pastors get and the, you know, that the one Kirkpatrick daughter, that's so much problem. I, I, I don't even remember really discussing the options with the boyfriend. I just, it was like, we just decided he's, he didn't want to be a dad and I didn't want to have that conversation. And it was kind of an unspoken agreement. I, I don't know how to convey how terrifying it was, even though I know that my parents wouldn't kill me and that there, there wouldn't be a physical reaction, but almost like there would be a loss, a death, even if I were to keep the baby and the death would be of my life and my hopes and my dreams. And, and it seemed like such a horrifying conclusion that I was pregnant that I couldn't even really face it. So if I just have abortion, then I don't have to face anything. At least that's what I thought. Well, it's, it's surprisingly understandable. I mean, you can feel the weight of it, even hearing it now. And, and, but it, it helps so much to hear that. Did you know where to go? Like, like did, when you, that day you walked in alone, like, yeah, well, tease that out a little. Um, I, I knew that I could go to a pregnancy resource center or I could go to Planned Parenthood. And if I went to a pregnancy resource center, I knew what they would say. And I knew that again, small town in Colorado, I knew that they would know my dad. So, um, there really was no, no other choice except to go to Planned Parenthood to confirm the pregnancy. So when I went in, I met the the director of the local Planned Parenthood, met with me personally, and she was, I think the pro-life movement tries to paint Planned Parenthood as evil a lot. And I think that if we want to make some movement in, um, in the pro-life arena, we have to admit that these are, these are humans and they believe what they're saying. And she treated me compassionately and uh, kindly. And she commiserated with me on a personal level where she understood what I was going through. And she had had an abortion when she was 19 and she went, finished college and chased her dreams. And then when she was ready on her time and on her terms, she had a child and she wasn't selling me murder. She was selling me hope and dreams. And I can see how that's so appealing to so many girls because it, it seems like it's a solution to a problem. But I think that we have to be really honest with ourselves that it, while it might resolve the pregnancy, it, it doesn't solve anything. And it creates so much more pain and trauma than, than is even fathomable. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, talk us talk to us about that. So you went through the appointment, you finished the visit, you go home, and you're like you're at your parents' house, but you don't tell anybody. Like, that right. must have been so dark, right? And hard. It, it really was. Um, 
sorry, it really was hard. Um, I, the appointment, the next available appointment for the actual procedure wasn't for another week. And so I just had to sit with this for a week and, um, I didn't want to talk. I didn't talk about it to anybody. Um, there's a verse in the Bible that, that says that the Lord will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. And I've really looking back, seen where he's so faithful to that promise. Um, because there were three instances before I went through with the abortion where I had, there was, he provided a way out. He provided a way of escape and I didn't, I didn't take it. So, um, my mom, there were four girls in our family. So people might think that's weird, but my mom tracked, we tracked all of our periods on the calendar and she had noticed and she came into my room and she looked so sad, but so earnest and loving. And she asked me if I was pregnant and it was like an eternity passed in those few seconds where I was trying to decide, do I say yes and face this or do I just stick to what I've already planned? And, um, I wish I could take it back, but I, I can't, I, I said no. And, and I just moved forward. And then, um, when the week passed, I, w- I went to that appointment and he came with me. Um, my boyfriend did. And I can remember every, every sight in that room. I can remember the smell and the sound, um, I can remember the sound of the procedure. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Uh, even as I was walking in, I was so scared, but I, I couldn't think of what else I was supposed to do because I had already decided. And, um, so I, I remember that I had to force myself to lay it down and I just kind of clenched the white paper up in my hands and held myself there just by sheer willpower alone. Um, And as soon as I clenched my eyes and I turned my head to the wall and I just thought if I can just lay here for a few more minutes, it's going to be over. It'll be done. It'll be over with. Um, And then when I, I'll never, ever forget this, I don't think, but when I opened my eyes, I turned my head back to the other side and the nurse was carrying past this canister. And um, it was, it was my baby. And it wasn't identifiable or anything like that, but I knew what it was. And uh, I think something in me broke then. And for all the strength I was trying to display and trying to be the master of my own universe and we write our own destinies and all these things, all these cliches that we like to say, um, man, that choice, that choice, as soon as I made it, I, I just knew it was the worst choice. Um but it was too late and I couldn't take it back. Um, so when I came out and they put me in the recovery room, uh, the boy had, uh, he played sports. So he had a game that day and he had left. And so I think that was just like the final straw, um, and really letting me see what I had done in trying to fix a problem. Um, I was totally alone. I had done this thing that I knew was wrong to the inner deepest, most parts of my soul. And, um, how could God ever forgive that? So, um, yeah, it was dark. It was, did you, in that moment when you felt like that, did you feel though, um, like, did you feel a sense of God's presence? 
No, I, I didn't. Um, there, I can't, I know he was there. I know he was there with me. Um, I can, if I close my eyes and picture it and just think about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know that he was there with me, weeping over me as I laid on that bed. Um, but I had effectively shut him out. I, I knew that if I, I peeked at this God that I had loved my whole life, then I would lose my resolve. And I don't even know why I wanted to stick to it so badly, but I guess I had made that choice and I was going to chase after my own life and my own dreams. And I didn't, I don't don't know, Lena, I, I didn't feel like there was any turning back, but I have never felt more alone, more, uh, in the desert, in the wilderness than I did that day. So, so you go back home and you try to like, you go back to normal or what happened? Yeah. Well, I thought that I would just go, we went to a movie that night. Uh, so I just, I tried to act like everything was okay. And I, I, I don't know if I did well or not. I think looking back, People at school that next year definitely saw a change in me. Okay, I didn't do well at all. Um, but I tried. I thought I could just act normal. and um, But there was almost an instantaneous uh, hatred of myself and of my boyfriend. So this boy that I, I, I wanted to keep, desperately wanted to keep, I ended up just loathing. Um, I could hardly look at him after that. And... Um, m- for the next year and a half, I, man, I, I think I totally changed. I drank and I slept around and I barely passed my senior year. Um, I moved out the second I graduated high school and I started doing drugs and partying and um, I really just devolved and I didn't know why I didn't. If in that time, I didn't say to myself, this is because I had an abortion, but I just hated who I was and I hated everything about who I had become. Um, There were signs that a lot of this had to do with the abortion Uh, there. I remember that uh, law and order came on one day when I was at a friend's house and a woman that they were investigating had had her baby cut out of her belly. And so they were investigating that crime. And as soon as that scene came on, I just had, I ran crying out of the house. So there were triggers. I, I couldn't say abortion. Um, there were things that I, I just could not do, but I just kept drinking and doing more and more drugs and partying and going home with more people. Um, I know that there was a marked change in me because about a year and a half later, my sister came over for dinner and we were making spaghetti at my apartment and she asked me if I had lost a baby and I was horrified and and I asked her why why on earth would you ask me that and she said because you are so sad and you have changed so much and that is the only thing that I can think of that would that would change you the way that you've changed and um so I finally I told her I admitted it and we cried and cried and cried. And then, um, she left my apartment and went straight to my parents' house and told them. And so that's how, I guess that's how the secret got out with my family. Um, 
So tell us about that. I was just going to ask you, how long did it take you before it came out? And it was about a year and a half that you carried this. And then what happened? Were they, I mean, just, just when did you start feeling some hope? Uh, well, um, they, it was Thanksgiving time. And so I went over for Thanksgiving. I did, nobody had told me that mom and dad knew. And so my dad kind of blindsided me with it. Um, and it went as well as you can expect, which was not well. Um, I don't really remember their reaction. I remember my mom just crying a lot and my dad cried too. They're both criers. Um, and I remember thinking that I had to get away from them. And so I left and I remember my dad standing on the porch saying, uh, just run away. That's what you always do, which he was upset. So let's not be mad at him in that moment. Um, but I, uh, so I, it wasn't that night, but it was a, a few nights later, I decided that I just wanted to die. Um, I didn't want to, I couldn't face what I had done. I couldn't face my parents. It would have been their first grandchild. Um, I couldn't face the the life that I had created for myself. So I, I make this decision in order to chase my dreams and to make a beautiful life for myself. And then when I woke up one day and my life is nothing, it's emptiness and sorrow and drugs and men. And it was horrible. So, um, we, I was driving, I was a cocktail waitress. So I was driving home after work. It was like two 30 in the morning and I had to go over an overpass. So I just decided that I was just going to drive off and it was a little icy that night. And I, I just resolved that I would wreck off the overpass. And then my parents wouldn't have to know that I had killed myself and it wouldn't be one more way I broke their heart. But I, so even as much as I wanted all of this pain to stop, I don't, I don't think anybody really wants to die. Um, so I, I'm accelerating towards the top and I, I open my sunroof and I take off my seatbelt and I roll down my windows and I'm praying, Lord, if, if you are there and if you can forgive me, just let me know. And um, my best friend called me and she said that she felt like she needed to see if I was okay. And so I pulled over and I cried and we cried. She knew. Um, and she had watched me just deteriorate since it had happened. And um, a couple of days later, my sister in Florida called and said that she thought I should just leave and start over and that I could go to her house if I wanted. So I packed up and I left and I moved to Florida and just tried to start over. Wow. It's so hard to hear on one hand. On the other hand, it's so real. Like, this is such a real story. Tell me a bit about that phase after that, like a couple layers to that. A, when did you get back on page with God? So there's that element of it. And then secondly, when did you get back in a healthy, like now you're married and you actually have kids. So talk to me first about your spiritual life and then maybe sort of now, you know, how you phased into being a mom. Right. Well, there, when I first got to Florida, let me back up a little bit. I, I wavered before I left and I was so scared of facing these demons. Like as long as you stay drunk or you just keep partying or you just keep sticking drugs up your nose, you don't actually have to face what the problem is. And I knew that the second I moved to my sister's house, 
that would be over. So the plan was that I was going to leave January 1st. Um, and I, I was wavering, I was waffling. And she had said to me on the phone, if you tell me that you're going to come, you have to promise me that nothing will, will get you out of it. And you promise me that you'll keep your word and you'll come. So I had made her that promise, but I definitely was waffling. And, um, I, on New Year's Day, I woke up and I was in someone's house and I had no idea how I had gotten there. And I had bruises on my neck and my breasts. And I woke up with a sense of run, you have to get out of here. And I had no memory of anything. Um, And so when I got out of bed, I looked in the mirror and I was, I was bruised and I was scared. And so I, I decided, okay, this has to stop. But I, I tell you that part because it, I think that it's important to recognize that even when we recognize the depths of our despair or pain or the burdens that we're carrying, it is still so hard to, to find the courage maybe to try to climb out of that pit. Um, and so it wasn't until I saw that I had been hurt by someone and I remembered nothing of it that I finally was like, I'm, I am going to end up dead. Um, and so I, I came to Florida and I slept for a month. Um, I was just exhausted and Shannon, she let me sleep. And then about a month into it, part of our deal had been, I would have to go back to church if I were to come move in with her. So she let me slide for about a month. And then she said, okay, you're coming to church this week. And it happened to be, it just happened. I don't believe in coincidence to be right to life Sunday. And oh wow. yeah, so um, the crisis pregnancy centers in Jacksonville um, do a great job connecting with local churches. And that particular Sunday, it wasn't just save the babies, save the babies. It was we care for the moms who have chosen abortion and we love them and they are redeemable and God forgives them. And we offer a class to prove this. So Shannon was elbowing me. I'm sure she left bruises. And so I agreed to go to this post-abortive Bible study called Forgiven and Set Free. And um, it was really hard. It was a lot of, of hard work to believe that God forgives me. Like I've always believed that Jesus bore the 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 weight of all our sins on that cross, but to believe that it could apply to me and what I had done was so hard to really believe. Um, but it was, that's been, it's been a long time. So it was 12 week course, I think. And it walks you, it walked me through the grief process. It gave me permission to grieve. So many women that are post-abortive do not believe that they have a right to grieve because they made that decision. So they carry this, this un, unaddressed grief and sorrow that they don't feel they have any right to feel because they made this choice. And so that was the first thing that it did was it, it taught me it is okay to grieve. In fact, you have to grieve. And then it gave us the chance to mourn our babies and to put a, a name to that child and to put a, a, not really a face, but a life to that child and, and to mourn that loss. And then it really taught us to um, forgive those that were involved in the decision and also to believe that God has forgiven us. I think the hardest part is 
it, it tries to teach us to forgive ourselves because there, there is no condemnation that anyone can throw at me like I throw at myself. And there is no shame or guilt or anger that anybody could put on me that it would be worse than what I already put on myself. Um, so it kind of walks us, it walked us through that process. Um, so after that, I tattooed forgiven and set free on my wrist. And I was like, I am fixed and I am going to single-handedly stop abortion and so I started volunteering at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and I started working with an abstinence education organization. And for about a year, I spoke all over Florida five, six times a week, telling my story over and over and over um, in front of schools and health conferences. I, I went on TV with a couple programs like I was wow. I was just putting it all out there. But I think that looking back now. I think that I was, I still was trying to earn forgiveness, trying to uh, absolve myself through, through hard work. And that's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus forgives you if you work really, really hard and, you know, repay all this. That's not it. He paid the price, period. And does he call us to holiness? Yes. Does he call us to be changed once we accept that, that gift of forgiveness? Absolutely. But there's no buts after it. Um, and it's, it's the acceptance of his forgiveness that changes us. And I think that's what is missing in this conversation is that uh, on the Christian side, we have to, we have to, to tell women like me, you can be forgiven. Jesus already paid the price, period. No buts. And um, so <laughs> about two years after I went through Forgiven and Set Free, I found myself pregnant again outside of marriage. And so I I think it had set me on that road, but I still didn't believe, like I don't think in the deepest corners of my heart, I believed that I could really be forgiven and set free. Um, and it was my oldest with my husband. And so he jokes that I got my tattoo prematurely um, of being forgiven and set free. But so um, I got pregnant with Bailey, broke my parents' heart again. Um, James and I lived together for two and a half years before we got married. And it was during that time that he went to jail. And so I've had a... Um, it's not an on again, off again relationship with the Lord, but it is where I have run close and then run far away and run back and run far away. And um, I don't think I ever really knew what forgiveness was. And I think that's why I tried to um, work so hard to, to single handedly change the face of the pro-life movement right after I went through that post-abortive class because I needed to do something in order to ensure that forgiveness. And um, my sweet pain in the butt husband has, has taught me so much about forgiveness over the last few years as he's walked through all of this with me. And um, just as we've lived through real life together and um, walked out our commitment to be married, um, nothing teaches you forgiveness like marriage, I don't think. And well, and you describe everything to the, your story is such a process, like there's no quick fixes to anything. I think that's the mistake that 
Christians fall into believing. Like it, even people who first come to Christ, they think this is going to fix all my problems, but it, it's a process, right. a relationship, a journey. Uh, how do you, I mean, do you, I guess I want to just get into a little bit, how do you change the conversation? Because everyone has an opinion. I mean, with what's happened in New York and in Virginia and others, I, the country is so polarized on this topic, right. but as Christians, I mean, let's focus on followers of Christ and and I have a lot of friends who work like Save the Storks movement is particularly near to my heart because they try to focus on on being really pro-life in many aspects of it. But what are some things as a woman who's walked that path that you think, because I can imagine, I just imagine that you've got a lot of hate stuff from the church. Like you did what? And I, I would be ashamed to bring it up in a church setting. So the healing that you've done to be able to talk about it at any point in your life is only an indication of God's grace in your life. And I think that's amazing. But 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 really, I think a lot of women have had abortions and don't bring it up because of the fear of what their churches will think. But how do you change this conversation to a place of healing and where actually women don't feel trapped like you did at 17? Right. I think the, the most the first step is to acknowledge is for church, the body of Christ churches to acknowledge that the statistics for abortion don't change inside those church walls. So if one in three women outside of church have had an abortion, one in three inside have as well. And it's this whole uh, missing mission field that I think that we're missing um, where the, the statistics remain the same throughout the demographics. And so abortion is, it, it's, uh, it's prolific. It touches every family. Everybody knows somebody that's had an abortion, whether or not they actually know that they do. Um, so I think that's the first thing that we have to recognize is it's there. And the women that the woman that you're sitting next to in church may very well be one of those women. Um, a few years ago, I, I met a woman in church that had an abortion 45 years before, 45, and she had never told anybody. She had carried that pain and shame on her back by herself for 45 years because she was so ashamed of what she had done. And um, so I think the very first step is for churches to recognize that it is real and the statistics are real. I think the second thing that we all need to work really hard to remember is that there is not a list in the Bible that says they, they, these are the worst sins and down here and here's a one through 10 scale. And Jesus forgave me of my abortion, just like he forgave you of lying. And, and yeah. he paid, he paid the price for it all. And so there has to, we have to figure out how we can change the mentality where abortion is like the one horrible, worst sin. It's the worst thing ever. Now, I think the reason we think that is because, um, it involves a baby and, and babies are innocent and they're precious and, and everybody loves babies. And so that's, I think what makes it so horrifying to us is that it is taking the life of a baby. But I think if Christians have a basic understanding of the gospel, then they would understand that the second that baby's life is extinguished, it's in the arms of our father. That baby is in heaven. It will never live in a broken world. It will never have to struggle with the pain that we struggle through in life. It doesn't have to deal with regret or remorse or shame or any of that. It's it's over and it's in the arms of our father. Whereas the mother who made that choice is left on this earth to, to labor under that shame and regret and guilt for the rest of her life and her very eternity is at stake. And so I think the first 
the second thing we need to do is look at it from a gospel perspective, that these women need to know that there is forgiveness available to them. And they need to know that their, their redeemer, Jesus came for them too, not just for the medium sized sins, but also for the really big ones. Um, so I think if I personally think that the pro-life movement should not be about the babies, the babies, the babies, the babies. And I know that that probably will chafe against some people and, and some people will kind of rebel against that in their spirits. But the reality is that, that these women faced an eternity apart from our savior. And I would do anything for the opportunity to share the gospel with them to ensure that they they don't find themselves in that position. And so I think it's really a gospel conversation, not a social justice issue. Um, I personally, that's so good. (laughs) Yeah, go on. Um, I personally would like to see Christians stop picketing abortion clinics. If you want to picket and you want to fight, then go stand outside the politicians' offices, but stop picketing abortion clinics. And I say this to you um, as someone on the other side of it, not because um, I don't think that that protesting can change anything, but I say that because those women um, are feeling condemnation in their most vulnerable moments from the church when we picket those abortion clinics. And they're seeing people stand out there with signs or they're recalling years later, protesters screaming in their faces. How are we then going to extend empathy and kindness and grace to them when just a few years earlier, we stood outside the building in their moment of greatest pain and called them a murderer? How can we then share the gospel with them later? Um, I, I really don't think that picketing those clinics will do anything to change anything. And I think that the last, I don't know, 30 years, however long people have been picketing, I think that kind of shows nothing's changed. It's not effective because you're heaping burning coals on the head of a broken woman. Um, I think if we, I think everything should go back to the Bible and, and what the Bible would dictate. And a lot of people want to say, well, we're supposed to call out sin. And Jesus met that woman at the well and he told her to go and sin no more. But he, he caught her in the act of committing adultery. And he said, turn from your sin. Whereas these women, most of them, almost every woman that you meet had an abortion in the past. They, they're not currently, you're not catching them laying down on the table right in that moment. It's something that has already happened. And a great, great, great majority of women that have abortions would never dream of doing it a second time. There are some that have multiple abortions. There are some that have a lot of abortions, but they're not the norm. And so how do we redeem those women that are trapped under the bondage of these decisions if we're constantly shouting condemnations at them? Um, What are some practical things Christians who are listening now can do? Little things in your home, I mean, to, 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 to show love. To woman, who, I mean, you don't know who has had an abortion, but something as little as maybe how you frame conversation on social media so that you don't look like you're unwell. Like if I saw what some people post, if I had had an abortion, I would never approach that person because I'd be like, well, they already hate me. I'm not going to talk to them. So you're going to be much more likely to go to, towards somebody who might show you love and acceptance because you already feel so lousy. I mean, what are little ways that you found that, you know, in your observation and might be effective, just practical tips that that we can integrate into our life and conversation in this 
debate, I should say. I mean, it is a debate in our country. Right. Um, Well, I think that you hit on the most important thing. Social media plays such a powerful role in our lives these days, and that's how we communicate um, all the time. And my the post that I wrote was actually directly in relation to a post that I had seen a bunch of, of Christian sharing. And it said, abortion doesn't make you unpregnant. It just makes you the mother of a baby you had killed. And it was being shared left and right by people who love me. And they greet me with a hug and they kiss me on the cheek and they love me. And they would never say that to my face. Ever in a million years would they say that to my face. And so I think the first thing we have to do is try to bring the humanity back to social media. If you wouldn't say it to somebody's face, then why are we saying it online? The anonymity that comes behind screens, and my husband calls it like the telephone tough guy, that has to change. Um, it, we, Even if you're not a Christian, and I have a hard time talking about this apart from my faith because it's so integral to who I am. But even if you're not a Christian, we can choose kindness and empathy. And um, I think that that just even acknowledging, like if you were to post, hey, I know that abortion happens and somebody on my friends list has had one. If you need a friend, I'm here. Just something simple like that, where you're saying, I'm not going to judge you. And, and I mean it and come call me or talk to me. Um, being cognizant of if you want to, a lot of people in response to my post have said, we're not mad at the moms. We're mad at the politicians or Planned Parenthood, or that's what we're fighting against. Well, then make sure that the memes that you share or the things that you write are really attacking the politicians. But if I can look through your page after that and see, um, oh my goodness, some of the, some of the stuff going around is just horrifying. If I can find things that that would wound me, then are you really fighting the politicians or are you just saying words that hurt? Um, I think our, our pastors need to do better at saying, we love you. And I know you're sitting in the congregation today and I want you to know you're loved and we're here and we'll walk with you. Um, I think like the Me Too movement was so powerful at bringing out sexual abuse and sexual assault, it it was effective. I think that when women who are post-abortive start finding their voice to say, yes, I I did have an abortion and it was excruciating and and this is what happened to me, then maybe we'll be forced to face this this unidentified mission field within the church. Um, But I I think something as so simple, I'm sorry, something as simple as just approaching the conversation with grace um, and humility is is really our strongest weapon. Well, I mean, even case in point, the idea that I wanted to do a podcast on this topic and couldn't think of people in my network, and I have a fairly broad Christian network who would feel, A, I don't know many who have walked that, this path that you've walked, B, that would be willing to talk publicly about it, is in a some, some way shocking. Um, in a time where, as you said, you, this is an area like a mission field in the church. And and I think that that's not the only big sin that the church has been guilty of sort of marginalizing and, and ignoring. And and when I say the church, I mean us. And I, I'm telling you, I, I, I love this conversation. I know we're coming here to the end, Shauna, but I, you're a gift to me, to the church, to this podcast, because I want to talk about these topics. And more importantly, I want to love like Jesus loved and loves. Right. And I, we can't do it until we really understand. Like I put myself back at your 17 years 
of age with the mess of what you walked through leading up to that. And I think, man, I'm not sure I would have done differently. And to realize that I think is sobering and to see God redeem your story and just even put you with your husband. You were both in a place where, you know, I might, you know, honestly, I might not date a person who had been an addict, but now look what God is doing. And and it's, I envy what you're doing in a sense, like you're living something that is so awesome in a kingdom perspective. How many children do you have now? We have three and my husband has one from his first marriage. So I've got three and a bonus kiddo. That's so awesome. And you talk about this with them, like you're not, I mean, they know, obviously they can look at social media. How do you like, are they young? I mean, tell us a bit about how this plays out in your own family. Well, Emma, uh, James's first daughter is 22. So she's grown. We had this conversation years ago um, where I told her and I just told her, if you ever find yourself pregnant, I am here and you do not, you are not alone. And um, and then my, my oldest daughter is 13. So this is a subject that we've really only started talking about over the last year or so. Um, we were very honest with the kids, but I haven't been ready to tackle that with my little two or seven and five. So we're, we haven't gone there yet with them. But um, we talk about James's uh, time in jail or where I've been, or they all know that I ran away from home. We're just very honest with them because God has redeemed every detail of our life. And so why should we hide anything back? Why should we hold on to it in shame? Or why wouldn't we use every tool that we have to glorify the Lord and to just shout from the roofs what he has done, which I think is why I'm on a boat in Puerto Rico right now is because he's so totally redeemed my life. I can't hold anything back from him. There, I mean, there's, I, I, it makes, I'm so excited to be a Christian when I hear stories like yours. I don't want a perfect story. I want a redemptive story that shows, highlights who Jesus is. Hey, um, your website and how to reach you. Maybe there's somebody listening right now who hasn't come to the place where they've been, the, the woman who had this shameful secret for 45 years, if she's listening right now, how can they reach you if, if there's a way that they might open up to you in a way that they might not to me? Absolutely. Um, you can email me at... Shauna, S-H-A-W-N-A at G-S-S-M-I dot org. Or look me up on Facebook. I'm Shauna Downs. um, And I've been getting hundreds of messages from women since posting this. So that's how a lot of people are messaging me. And I'm responding to everyone and praying over everyone. And um if you are carrying this burden, please know that you are so infinitely loved by a Savior who came um, to redeem you. And you do not have to walk alone. And I would be honored to walk alongside you as your sister and your friend. Uh, Shauna Downs, uh, my first blind date with her. This is our first encounter. You are a friend for life. I really love your story, Testimony, and hope we meet in person someday. And we had Carlos Rodriguez on the show here in the past. I know I want to connect you guys, so I'll shoot you guys an email. But it's just, I'm so grateful for the time that you took to tell us your story and your authenticity and your mostly your love for Jesus. It just radiates through every word you've spoken today. Thank you for having me, Lena. It's been an honor. Hey guys, if you're wrapping up the podcast now, remember you can always email me too. Uh, we'll have all of the email, you know, the website and the email address for Shauna. You can reach me at Lena, L-I-N-A, at livingwithpower.org. Know that you are deeply loved by our Savior Jesus. Hey, this has been the Pope Podcast. Have an awesome day and I'll catch you guys next week.